Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm so excited to be here in one of my favorite galleries, actually, the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. And I'm joined by the Sing Twins now. I have been so excited about meeting up with you. You are living legends oh, in God. the world of art history. Gosh, you're making us you, feel really old now. No, you're amazing. And, and oh, rightly, you. you've been awarded MBAs for your oh, work. Yes, I've been very to receive that, yes. Yeah, and um, you've been working together. I mean, that's the whole idea, is that you have been a unit working as artists in different mediums your whole lives, pretty since, much. Since the age of dot, really. Ever since we can remember, we've been side by side with a felt tip or a pencil scribbling away, sometimes in books, sometimes on the walls. Yeah. <laughs> the pleasure of our father, who very soon started buying us paper, you know, proper things to draw on. But there is a serious side yeah. to the reason why we, why we work together, and that really stems back to our time at art college, where the fact that we were inspired by similar art forms and developed a similar personal style was a real problem for the tutors in this contemporary art course where you know the cult of individuality within modern art was the be-all and end-all of everything and I think the tutors felt that we were stifling our individuality and copying each other which was you know it could be further from the truth we just happened to be two individuals who were inspired by the same art and that came through in our own practice practice. being twins genetically you know similar skill sets and all of that there's very little difference in the kind of uh, outputs that we were creating at that time um, and for us as twins, I think we wanted to sort of um, challenge that a little bit because it's something we've had all our lives about this whole stereotyping of twins and twin behaviour. And so from that point onwards, we started wearing the same. We never used to wear the same at that well, point. Well, that's it, I should say, because obviously this is an audio podcast. <laughs> yeah. But yes, you're identical twins and you dress absolutely identically down to the earrings, ladies. Yeah, I'm very yeah, impressed. made an art of being the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was really to challenge this whole idea of individuality and, and to kind of poke a bit of fun at it because from our point of view... Uh, you know, although our work was very similar within the art course, our, our peers around us were churning out clones of Matisse and Gauguin and Picasso. Our work was actually the most original work in the whole department, <laughs> if I might say so myself. And so we thought, well, where is this stereotyping coming from? And then also when you look around society and you think about how we're all dictated to by the fashion world, by the media, by, you know, the, yeah. and, you know there, there's no such thing as individuality when it, when it boils down to it. We're all influenced by something, somebody, somewhere at some time. And that's become part of our sort of key message of a lot of our work, including 
the fact that we worked physically worked together on a lot of the things that we produced. Well, as I've well. seen lovely footage of the two of you shoulder to shoulder <laughs> doing your miniature work. <laughs> that was the easy way. It's normally head to toe, so that was like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least you got a desk and yeah, some yeah. paper now. <laughs> but it is. It's a. It's a really interesting problem. I can imagine for the contemporary art world to say, uh, do, you know, do you do we take you as two people or do we take you as a as a collective? Well, cool. of course, we're, we're two people. Yeah. We, can't, you, we can't get away from that, but we are very, very close. And our, our ideology and the things that spark, you know, the ideas within our work are usually pretty identical because we have identical experiences in life. And, you know, a lot of our work is inspired by our, our cultural heritage, our Indo-British you know, relationship that we've both experienced. Uh, you know, as well as you know, taking trips to America or, or elsewhere in the world. So you shared all of that. Your exactly. memories are shared. Your together. So yeah. shared experiences and, we, and triggers similar interests. So do you still do things together now? Do you still sort of yeah, live we alongside do. each I mean, other? A lot, a lot of the, well, we, yes, we, we, we live in a, a traditional extended Indian family. So there's us as well as the rest of the clan, if you like. Fantastic. And whenever uh, we've been traveling, it's usually our work takes us traveling. So we're doing that together. There's family, we go on holidays together. So, you know, that's the way we, we love it. It's, I think it's quite, I mean, even when we go abroad together, we feel actually we're alone because it's just the two of us. So oh. we kind of not really enjoy ourselves about <laughs> the rest of the family. Well, I came yeah. to your, pre- your, your preview last night for your amazing new exhibition that we're standing in at the moment. And, and, and it was, it was such a warm and exciting experience. So many people around you that love your work and, and you've become real patrons of the city of Liverpool, haven't you? We have, yes. We've had an ongoing relationship with the city. I mean, we've been fortunate enough in the past to have been asked to represent it at various stages and in particular, during 2008 where Liverpool was European capital of culture yes. the city commissioned us to do two major works uh, both of which are currently on display in the city in different venues and that really strengthened our roots with the city because one of them in particular was about the history of Liverpool it was coinciding with the 800th anniversary of the city and so we were, had this mammoth challenge to try and put that whole 108 years into one single painting, which was quite in difficult. One painting, in one yeah. painting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, luckily we have a, before we were artists, we had an academic background and we were particularly interested in, um, you know, cross-cultural histories and identities and religions. And so all that came to play in the research for the work. And to some extent, it was like doing a little mini thesis. So the kind of logistics of trying to work out all this information and how to cram it into this painting uh, ended up okay, I think, in the end. But, uh, but also, yeah, one of the one of the, the wonderful things about your work is that you are miniaturists, essentially, aren't you? You work right. on a very, very detailed yeah, scale. Yeah, we're inspired by Indian miniature painting, which is akin to the medieval min- manuscripts that you'd have in the yeah. West. And we would just no passion. Yeah, yeah, I know. Right? And they've just fascinated us from teenagers when we first went to India, and we came across this wonderful art form. And it wasn't just the, the skill and the beauty that we appreciated; it was also the humour and the satire, particularly the political satire, which is something that we've carried through in our own works ever since. Indeed. So it was just amazing. And this language was just really being uh, thrown by the neglected. wayside, neglected in India as something that was backward, you know, something that was from the past. And artists, contemporary artists there were just busy copying Western kind of canons of, of art. Yeah. And uh, it, so from that age onwards, we made it our mission. We're going to revive this, this tradition and make it valid for a contemporary audience. And that's hopefully what we've been doing. So uh, although our language is very ancient... What we have to say is very contemporary. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is the thing I love because you've you've used uh, actually quite closely. You've used some examples of Indian miniature works from the 16th, 17th, 18th century, mm-hmm. but then taken the format and the style and put 
modern characters, the political right. figures into it. Mm -hmm. um, That's right. It's yeah. just a matter of reinterpreting the old themes to give them the contemporary relevance. So, for example, there's a really famous Indian miniature painting which shows one of the Mughal uh, Muslim emperors of, of the time um, embracing the Shah of Persia or the ruler of, of Persia. And they're standing on this globe and, and the Mughal emperor is standing on this mighty lion, you know, it represents his character. And the poor Shah, he's, he's standing on this little meek, mild lamb to show his character. So you can, you can tell who actually commissioned the painting just from that. And so we've reinterpreted that actually several times, but the latest reinterpretation is one using exactly the same format, but showing Bush and Blair. And it's all around the issue of the Iraq war. And, uh, you know, Blair's standing on this poodle, uh, cozying up to, to Bush, who's standing on this um, it's hyena, a, a hyena yes. which is a symbol of uh, deceit. So we just love reinterpreting old, old themes and making them relevant for a new audience. And the idea of putting in, um, I mean, you put in celebrities, you put in people from your environment as well, don't you? And is that because it's not about slavish copying, it's more about the idea of what these, these sources can inspire in you? Yeah, I think we've always been interested in the way that history can inform the present. And so part of that reinterpretation is, is trying to show the validity of um, not just the kind of issues of politics and, and uh, the kind of social context of the past and how they continue in the present, but also the language of the past and how that is still valid. And unfortunately, a, a language that's pretty much been lost in contemporary art practice. Mm. You know, the idea of using flowers as symbolism, for example, or colour as symbolism. Or animals. Um, you know. Peacocks. I yeah. have been... <laughs> you're obviously obsessed with peacocks, as yeah. am I. They're like beautiful and things, aren't they? They are. They are yeah. miraculous yeah. things, aren't they? And the colour and... But yeah, so all that symbolism, I completely yeah. agree, it is we've a lost to, language. Yeah, we'd love to revive that. And we understand that a lot of people won't understand the, the finer detail of our work and, until they relearn that language. But... Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on where you look at it, we have reams of text and artist interpretations yeah. that go alongside our, our artworks. And for those that want to read it, you know, the interpretations are there and, and we would like to think that through there we're reviving you know, a small proportion of the society, this beautiful language that we've grown up, you know, loving you know, since childhood, really. Well, I knew I would love coming to this exhibition. I was so delighted to be invited. Thank you. Oh, not at all. Um, <laughs> and it's called it Slaves of Fashion. This, this is, I mean, it's a big exhibition, actually. You've got yes. two, two, three rooms of, of yeah, yeah, exhibition yeah, space. Yeah, three years in the making, so it's, Three years. Yeah, yeah. But what really struck me, <laughs> knowing uh, about your miniature work, yeah. Was, we are dealing with large pieces. Yeah, yeah. life size. Okay. Yeah, this is a break. This is a breakaway for us, I have to say, and um, it's been quite liberating actually. <laughs> it's really lovely to see our work in such large scale. I mean, we'd, we've been longing to do this for such a long time, and really? we were trying to figure out how could we do it in a practical way because, of course, the miniature style technique is so time-consuming. And we're talking about works which are probably about well, the life three, size three figures, foot aren't by they? I don't know, eight foot, eight foot. something like more that. More than life. Well, yeah. the figures are life size, yeah. aren't yes, they? they are. Yeah. Um, and each one is dominated by a figure. So what was the sort of overarching idea behind this then? Well, the work was really sparked off by a trip to France, quite yeah. incidentally, and we were in the Slavery Museum in Nantes, and uh, we came across these textiles which the curator was explaining had been produced in India for the French, specifically for exchanging in Africa for slaves. Oh my gosh. And that was a real revelation to us, because I think, you know, we're talking about the transatlantic slave trade here, and most people think that's something to do with the Western Hemisphere, including yeah. ourselves at that point. And we didn't realise just how complex that history was, and the fact that India in some way was connected Drawn to that it, history yeah. in a very direct way. And wow. So we came home and we were avidly, um, these uh, textiles from the French point of view were called Andians, and we came home and started googling in the word and trying to find out more about this history 
And of course, that opened up a whole floodgate of information about Indian textiles in general, which we then delved deeper into. And from that, we realized that it wasn't, you know, this story of textiles was not really about textiles at all. It was about the history of the globe, the history of empire, colonialism, you know, the conflict, the relationship between trade, conflict, and luxury lifestyle. And that's basically what this new series is about, bringing all those <coughs> ideas together historically, but also wanting to tie in the contemporary relevance as well, because obviously these issues around empire and colonialism, uh, you know, exploitation of labor, particularly within the fashion world, are things, uh, continuing and, you know, continuing our consumer issues. world yeah. are still very much part and parcel of who we are as a community today. But, but this is what I find so, so wonderful about this exhibition, is it's both, it's both almost microscopic in as much as it deals with individuals, moments, and, and all these little miniature scenes are anecdotes, they're, they're little messages, aren't they? But the, the bigger scheme here is, is giving a chronology of the history of, of the world. Of the it world. Is, it yes, is. I mean, you know, the American <laughs> yeah. Civil War, the, yeah. Rev- the French Revolution, uh, Haiti Revolution, it's all there. Yeah. 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 Indian yeah. independence. It's definitely, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not an Indian story, it's a global story. We're just looking at it through the eyes of an Indian sub-story, if you like. Yeah. And um, fact, all those ideas are tied up in um, a poem that was also on display at the exhibition, which really brings together uh, through prose all the themes that are explored throughout the whole rest of the artworks. And right. hopefully it'll make a bit more sense to people when they see that poem and come back and hopefully look at the, the artworks themselves. They'll be able to pick out some of the details and they'll know some of the little stories that are depicted. Because it was quite difficult to try and um, pigeonhole, if you like, the various themes that we wanted to, to look at within the wider context of that so the same that crossover, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, so, e- so each of the, the exhibitions divided into kind of, not two sections, but complementary parts. You have 11 large-scale um, batlet uh, fabric artworks each of which can t- uh, have a main figure as the kind of focal point. And around each of those figures, you have various little uh, details of other figures and decoration that um, link into the story of the key portrait being depicted and the theme that that particular work is exploring. And then uh, complementing that, there are nine, con- what we say is more contemporary, overtly political responses to the whole theme of um, legacies of empire and, you know, ethics of trade and, and uh, responsible consumerism in the world today. And those are the, see, because I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the, the combination between the large scale light boxes, which are sublime. And I came in and I thought, my goodness, they are like stained glass windows. This is heaven to see oh, your work on you. a large scale. And then you've got the smaller pieces. I was very excited by the ones that are inspired by Gilray. So yeah, you well, we're big Prince fans of Gilray. Isabel, the who can't artist, you know, <laughs> he, the, the humour in his satire, you know, is we to affiliate with him, don't we? So it's, yeah, it's social political and, and he's deeply political, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, and of course, some of the themes he dealt with fitted in beautifully with the themes that we were dealing with. I mean, things like, you know, fight, fighting over um, areas of, of the globe, yeah. you know, in, with kind of Nelson and... Um, I think it's uh, Jack Tarr, isn't it? They're fighting over the Africa in, yep. in the modern context. We've got Boris Johnson fighting over India with Angela Merkel. So it was just a, it was just a, a well, it was an opportunity we couldn't miss to reinterpret yeah. some of his works, quite yeah. frankly. And I think this is the other thing that, that obviously informs all of your work. You're art historians as much as you are working artists, yeah. aren't you? And that's that's essential in a way to put together something on this scale that's yeah. going to tell such a big story. Well, we just love the academic side of being an artist, and not not many people kind of equate the two, but we certainly do. I mean, our background is prior to formally becoming artists, kind of officially, we were academics, and we just wanted to carry on that side of our background, and so every work does start with an intense period of research. Sometimes it's 
actually a hindrance as it was with this project because there was so much to research and we were so engrossed in the research that we almost forgot that we had some paintings to do. <laughs> Until the deadline starts looming and it's like, okay, we've got to decide, you know, we, we can't research forever. We could go yeah. on forever with each theme, whether it was indigo or Caramandel Coast or, you know, Kashmiri shawls. And there came a point where we had to put the, the books down and pick up the paintbrushes and start painting. Yeah. But actually, the books were being picked up in between. I bet. Well. They were, <laughs> you know, there's some, you'd, you'd see something on the news or read something in the newspaper and you think, okay, that really connects. We have to put that in too. So then you're scurrying around trying to you know, connect all, all the strands yeah. again. We're just trying to keep as updated as possible to the yeah. 11th hour. So even Donald Trump, some of the themes in the painting that's around here. I can't imagine how you keep up with Donald Trump in your art. Well, you know, <laughs> A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. He's, he's proved oh, four weeks before <laughs> Christmas, you know, we were still picking up on his quotes and thinking, okay, we've got to put that in the oh 11th hour. So, yeah. But I think all of this is to do with the fact that personally we see ourselves as social political commentators. I know, again, going back to kind of stereotypes of modern art and how modern art is often dictated to us these days. It's all about the individual artists and their inner angst and their own you know, personalities and emotions. For us, it's not about that. It's about communicating with the public. It's about telling stories and having interconnected narratives between you know, who we debates. are of the yeah. past and but today. The creating art that becomes then a document for future generations to understand our own time, which is something that we've sort of lost, isn't it? That the artist was yes. a commentator. Yes, Definitely. exactly. It's become almost... Uh, you know, when we were going through the, the art system again, you know, it was something that was really frowned upon and in fact the, the fact that we had chosen to use the ancient Indian miniature tradition to inspire our own work was, was really um, sort of looked down Taboo. upon. We, we were yeah. told that it was backward and outdated, had no place whatsoever in contemporary art. So in a way it was good because it challenged us to get up and say well hang on a minute, it has a real place here. And But that was also to do with the sort of uh, I think uh, ingrained prejudice if I may say, you know with the sort of western outlook on valuations of art and, and how art is defined by um, the Western benchmark. And for us, you know, we saw that as much as an attack on our Indian heritage and identity as our practice as artists and our kind of 
um, you know, wanting to express ourselves in the way that we felt was true to who we were, not, you know, true to whatever was being taught at the, you know, in our course at that time. Absolutely. And I, I mean, in terms of, we should probably focus in on a couple. <laughs> okay. because, I, I mean, it's just wonderful talking. Uh, it, but we, I want to look at the art itself. Now, this one, I have to say, okay. obviously. <laughs> like, the, yeah, medieval the medieval context. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about this one, because it did strike me as soon as I got in the door. <laughs> well, this is, this is a, a, um, a painting. Well, so I shouldn't say painting, because it's one of the light boxes. It's one of the art bo- uh, artworks titled Silks and Quilts. So it's obviously looking at the history of uh, silk and quilts from India and how that connects to particularly the European markets. Uh, it starts off in the medieval period uh, where we have Queen Isabella of Spain um, who's standing sort of uh, central, centrally within the composition there and she has various objects around her and she's also holding objects in her hands, some of which are <laughs> black and white representations of um, Actual engravings that we have collected. Because I Couple should say detail. that I should. I, I just oh, want okay, to we'll move into that. I, yeah. I, again, last night it was very busy, and I wanted to get up with your art. I just want to press my face up so close <laughs> because it is incredible the detail there. So, so holding well, a picture of Christopher Columbus. Well, yes, well because you see the whole idea. What, what we wanted to show. We talked about different themes within different artworks, and this is the kind of beginning in a way of the story because you have this idea of exploration but also exploitation through exploration and Christopher Columbus kind of epitomizes that for us he was someone that was sponsored by Queen Isabella to go out and find initially India of course Uh because of the wealth of India and these wonderful tales of the riches of India which of course included their wonderful you know the highly desired fabrics and and textiles of that time of course he didn't find India he found somewhere else but (laughs) the kind of connection goes back to India because what he discovered were new nations that, in, that were basically you know, conquered yeah. by Spain and Portugal in the end, and it, it enabled them to gain wealth through, again, slavery, um, the silver mines, the gold mines, and that, that discovery uh, then inputted into the whole economy of um, the trade in Indian textiles, because many of the European countries were, of course, exchanging textiles for, for silver and gold. India was not really interested in anything else. They, did, they didn't need anything else yeah. from anybody. And so it became that, that discovery and that conquest and that enslavement of people became really important to that whole story of, of the trade in Indian textiles. And so essentially that's where this, this image starts. But then around uh, the image itself you have various examples of the different types of beautifully produced fabrics that were either silk-based or silk-embroidered and also the quilted um, fabrics that were then um, traded with Europe through that uh, initially Portuguese connection, but then the Dutch, the French, the English, and of course all the other colonialists that decided they wanted a piece of the action in India. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, but, I mean, this is the thing. There's a a luxury and a a joy in all of these images, but there's also conflict and exploitation and stories that are unsettling as much as... As obviously exciting as well yeah. with characters from history. Well, I think it was the challenge for us was to try and depict two two things. One was our passion for and excitement about the discovery that in, India's uh, heritage and textiles was so pioneering and uh, so diverse and so rich, and we it's something that you so know, coveted in a way. Yes, yeah, pride, pride in that. Coveted. Yes, pride in that. But everybody, I bet, yeah. everybody loves wants Indian fabric. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everybody wants a piece of, yeah, of that. Exactly, and in a way, that's why it becomes so so controversial. Doesn't yeah, it? and that was it. That was once so the joy, I guess, and uh, celebration of textiles comes through the works. But at the same time, we didn't want to lose sight of the fact that this was linked to 
in a way, the kind of the beginnings of the, the commercial, um, you know, the, the sort of multinational kind of well, corporate, the, the, corp the corporate um, monopolies on trade and, and the way we have a, the beginnings of the consumer society and the materialistic lifestyle that we all know today, but actually goes back several centuries to this initial trade with, with India and other places and the uh, colonialism and empire, and that was all basically founded on trying to control people and resources in order to obtain these wonderful commodities that were desired by the West. And, and so that darker side is also... The darker um, side is, is there throughout. And, but I think what's, what's also interesting, obviously this is about fashion as much as anything else, yeah. and I think we tend to think of fashion as a modern concept. Mm. This, this shows that fashion, in terms of what people wore, how they expressed themselves, um, and the way that they used materials, objects, mm. I mean, you've got jewels, you've got... That. <laughs> That is absolutely stunning, that teardrop-shaped uh, piece there. But, but, but this idea that all of this is a statement about fashion and how yes. material comes into it. Yeah. And, well, and, well, particularly yeah. because the textiles initially were so expensive, and even the dyes such as indigo, which is also represented, that they were only affordable by the, the, the rich. Yeah. And so it was a symbol of status, and it did go with the luxury lifestyle. And you know, that, that was the, the initial demand until... Mechanisation, uh, yeah, the Industrial Revolution. The, in, England could not compete with, with the kind of skill involved in Indian textiles. And so until that happened and prices you know, dropped because of that mass production, it was very much part of the luxury lifestyle scene. And you actually work with material as well, don't you? Fabrics mm. and em embroidery. Um, is that... Well, we are, personally, you're talking about, yeah. we, well, we do um, usually create our own outfits. Yeah. <laughs> I must admit we don't have much time for that these days. <laughs> But I think also there's a connection not where we've produced it, but where fashion designers have been inspired by our work. Mm. So a couple of years back, the Indian fashion designer who's top of his league in India, which we were delighted to collaborate with him. Gosh, I he, know. Uh, he created his whole spring-summer season of, I think, 2015, 2015, um, around our work. And he was using, not handcrafted, actually. There were some elements of handcrafted embroidery, but it was mainly digital technologies that he used. So it was printed um, artworks on his beautifully draped and designed garments that sort of hit the catwalks. Gosh, that's it, was, it was wonderful <laughs> to see that translated. But, oh gosh, but yes. what a full circle story in a way of creating these sort of historical <laughs> yes, narratives. It's, uh, and then it's funny how them. things have tied in in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a personal favourite? Um, oh gosh, well, I think... I like Calico Jack because there were some quite amusing stories. Should we get to talk about Calico Jack? Yeah, because, so as we go past, just to keep the listeners in, involved, we've got we've well, just come from Sill. Okay, yeah. so we're now walking past the work which is to do with the Dutch connection and it's called Carmandel because they had uh, huge um, trade connections with the Carmandel coast of India, which is the eastern coast, southern eastern coast of India. And it's linking in the trade in textiles with the spice trade, which yeah. again was a very lucrative trade for the um, European traders to the east. Uh, and originally, the value of Indian textiles was not in their um, kind of worth as a commodity that people would wear and use in the West, but their bartering uh, value. So they, these were exchanged in Indonesia for these valuable spices that were then brought back to, to Europe to, you know, to, to enflavor people's food. Well, the high and mighty's table. And just, <laughs> Nobody just else could as, afford as them. an exercise <laughs> in historical fashion, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm stunned because, you know, your medieval fabrics and dress art spot on and then look, <laughs> this incredible Dutch, yeah, Dutch, Dutch outfit. Outfits. And then this is the, obviously the poster for the exhibition. It That's is, right. yes, this is Indigo. Indigo. So you obviously don't have the... Um, the historical costume here, because what you have <laughs> is like, exactly, you have, you have yeah. a 17th century queen, Mamsaz Mahal, 
who top half she's wearing her 17th century costume. I just noticed she's got M&Ms in her pocket. She yeah. has, yeah. Well, <laughs> I didn't it, see that yesterday. Well, in, indigo teen is a blue dye used in M&Ms, blue M&Ms. So oh, that's the kind of, about. yeah. So this whole work is about the indigo dye, which went, you know, was used in India for thousands of years before becoming, uh, you know, exported to the West. And Mumtaz has this beautiful, you know, 17th century costume on the top half. She's, she's, she's smothered in jewels, you know, mm. befitting her status and her, her luxury lifestyle, which again, you know, indigo was seen as blue gold, literally. It was so expensive to, to buy. And the bottom half, she's wearing these blue jeans. And, and um, you know, immediately I would think people will say, well, how did those two things go together? Most people think of blue jeans as Levi's, America, a modern, you Western know, fashion statement. <laughs> But of course, during our research, this is one of the fascinating things. You know, we found out um, so many stories that, and hidden histories that I'm sure most people are not aware of, that, that the denim fabric actually originates in India. The 16th century sailors of, of uh, a little, little town of Dong, Dongri, which is the where Dungari comes from, no. <laughs> where they used to wear this, this sturdy cloth to make sails and then to make trousers. And then you know, the Italians took it to Genoa, where you get, you get blue jeans coming from Genoa. And um, so it was turning, you know, this whole idea of um, cultural ownership um, on, on its head, that, where, you know, people identify certain objects with a particular culture mm -hmm. and a point in time. And we wanted to challenge those notions and get people to think yeah. about other ways of looking at objects. But you also, know, this, this podcast is called The Art Detective. You are detectives, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, you're uncovering stories. You're uncovering these yeah. connections. And then... We just love doing that. I bet. Mm. But, but then having the ability to be miniaturists, to be able to put in these tiny stories into a larger narrative, it's amazing. Well, we have to be miniaturists to get them in the canvas, literally. <laughs> so <laughs> I think if we had worked on a large scale, it would just be an impossible task. So we're just fortunate that we, we love the miniature style. Yeah, and the deep, so you've obviously got, in the background there, you've got the Taj Mahal, you've got... What are yeah, the, the Taj Mahal the that represents not only, I mean, the links of Mumtaz Mahal, who, who's buried, you know, beneath the Taj Mahal, but Agra, where the Taj Mahal is, is one of the main centres, or was one of the main centres for indigo production, and it was kind of the designer label of indigo. There were diff different varieties of indigo. But what the West wanted, of course, was the best, and the best came from Agra. Mm. And then in the bottom half of the painting, you have the darker side of the indigo trade. So yes. you have, you know, ultimately who has paid for that price and that, that demand. That's and on the, the one hand, you have the poor Indian peasants who were um, forced to grow indigo as a cash crop rather than growing uh, food. And that resulted in many famines in the Bengal region where mm. indigo was grown. And then on the other hand, you have... Uh, an African slave who, you know, once the British and, and the French and the, and the Portuguese had their own plantations in the Americas, they set up their own indigo plantations and cut out the Indian kind of, slave uh, middle yeah. man. Yeah. And I think, the, the, I mean, again, you've got these characters. I can see Elizabeth the first down there and Nelson mm. and Napoleon. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> well, they represent the kind of uh, the link between indigo and uh, conflict you know, or, tra or, and, trade, or, or trade or the demand for indigo so they're there to represent the fact that during that it's just an example of during the the uh, french uh, anglo wars of course the indigo demand was up because the blue uniforms of the soldiers mm. and the troops you know they needed the, they needed more dye so they got more dye from india but the, the reverse of that is when you have the colonized um you know the, the haiti kind of rebellions uh, in the Americas, where the, Indi where the indigo plantations were, for the, where the British were then sourcing it, when they collapsed, of course, they had to go back to India for their indigo. So there were these fluctuations <laughs> in the Indian-grown indigo dictated by politics. Oh, 
I mean, centuries of stories in this one. Now, I know you've got all sorts of interviews and amazing things you're doing today. I'm aware of this. But okay. let's go to your favourite, and we'll do this one last, because I'm already excited. There's a bird in this. Oh, oh magpie. Like I love okay. birds. I love birds. Hence the peacock fascination. Um, yeah. yeah, so this... Well, well, it's an odd one, aren't really, this particular word. Because all the, all the others are women-focused, yeah. and this one we have a, a, a gentleman of our... Perhaps not quite a gentleman if, if you discover that he's also a pirate. But I don't know. A lot of the uh, the East India Company and the, the other corporates were as much pirates as this, this young man as well. Anyway, so yeah. Um, so he's he's the only male. He's the yeah. only male figure, and he represents Calico. He's actually based on a historical pirate called Calico Jack, who was known for wearing calico, which is a cloth from India, you know, the, the, the vibrant colours, and his jackets were made from calico. So we thought he would be the ideal person to represent the whole theme of not just Calico in terms of its, the history of the cloth, but also the kind of political intrigue, the conflict aspects of what went hand in hand with uh, obtaining the, the cloth from India, but also um, pirating, theft, plunder of India, and uh, ultimately to gain control of Indian resources to control the trade in, in textiles. So he's the central figure. And then you have... Um, various stories around where, particularly in the bottom half, there were little anecdotes about the, how the British uh, particularly were so keen to get the, the, tr- the trade from India that they, they kind of came up with all sorts of um, trickery ideas to, to kind of get a foothold in India. So there was one where, um, to do with the Kashmiri shawls, which has come from the, the Kashmiri goats. And oh, this is the goat here? Yes, and okay. you see this, this goat in, 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 in this stormy sea, kind of uh, dr- drowning. I love, and, the, I love the way you've done the waves <laughs> in the clouds. Beautiful. <laughs> with all the, t- the turmoil. And the story behind that is that um, William Moorcroft, who was uh, in the employee of the East India Company, he was really uh, keen that Britain should overtake the Kashmiri shawl industry, and he tried to smuggle goats out of India, no, so that they could come to England and they could breed them. kind of breed them here and take over the industry. And he put all the male goats on one ship and the females on another, so and, no the sh- and of course, anything. one of the ships sank. So he lost half, oh, <laughs> he lost half of his goat. And to be honest, we chuckled quite loudly when we read that because it was like Brilliant. it serves you, it serves so you right, right. <laughs> yeah. So it was the, the, the male goat, uh, goats that went. We're not sure we're which not one, sure. but it, it didn't work because obviously there. you need. Exactly. To, to make them <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and then you ha- and then you have this other detail here where you have these two horses on a raft going along the river in the background, and that relates to a newspaper article actually that that we read about how uh, 18, from the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. yeah, so it was during the time of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, who was like the, 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 the kind of uh, empire of, of, of emperor of Punjab at the time, and this was the last region um, to be annexed to the British Empire under the Raj and they were really keen to navigate and, and learn how to get into the heart of this region called Sindh and so what they did is they gifted this king two big English horses because <laughs> Indian horses are very small and skinny so knowing and the article actually explains that the reason they gifted him these two big horses was to see how this king would get them up the river into the heart of Sindh so that they could learn follow the same route learn the route and then <laughs> So the story goes that this, this Muslim saint saw this happening. He was standing by the river and he saw these, these British horses going up this raft because Ranjit Singh had figured out a way to get these horses because it's so difficult over land in, yeah. in those days. There weren't roads like you have today. So it's almost like espionage. Exactly. 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 And so he's got his hand in the air and he literally was saying, alas, Sindh is now gone since the English have seen the river, which is the road to conquest. Oh, I love it. I love it. I mean, this is it. It's, I'm almost... 
I'm almost overwhelmed by the level of stories and detail in here. There is a, a book, obviously, a catalogue to accompany the... the well, not as yet, unfortunately. We were working on that. I think it's taken three years to put the work together, the artwork, and we, we kind of just ran out of time to... But the, the work is actually going to be touring, and so we're okay. hopefully going to try and get a book published because mm. I think mm. a lot is going to be lost on the audiences that come in. And we have um, an app which is just relating to the Indigo artwork which will give people a sense of the detail of uh, narrative within that, each. Yeah, within each. I mean, that's the, I, I tried using that last night. It's amazing. So you sort of hold up, the, you get the, the code and it gives you all of the, the back narrative. But, yes. but again, you know, it, it just deserves to be fully unpacked mm. and explained. Yeah. I was going around with the cats with the... Yeah, there are, there are some extended uh, tasks in, yeah, within the gallery space itself. And not, not a formal a book, but there are some extended texts that people can learn a little yeah. bit more about. Still very much cut down, I have to say. Yeah. But <laughs> they give a bit more than the captions on the wall, which there are limitations to that for well, the galleries. So. It, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. I, I can't tell you how much I adore your work, oh, because oh, as well, a medievalist, this idea of narratives within narratives, mm. symbolism... And the colour and light and beauty of them. They're yeah. extraordinary works. I mean, that was medieval oh, art you. for you, wasn't it? And Absolutely. we're big fans of medieval art for that reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, how long is the exhibition running for? It's running until the 20th of May this, this year, and then it goes on to Wolverhampton, I think from July through to September or thereabouts. Yeah. But all the, all the details will be up on the Walker Art Gallery website. Excellent. And can people follow your work? Are you on... They can. Facebook? Well, we're very bad. Well, we've just about managed to keep going a Facebook page. Well done. <laughs> um, I, I mean, we, we've, got, we've, we've got our, our, our website, website, of course. Yeah. With, yeah. And we have a, a Twitter account, which we don't get time to Twitter about anything. <laughs> but uh, I think our, our Facebook page and our website are the best places people can, can learn more about us and our work. But I have enjoyed this so much. Oh, thank you for taking the oh, time. No, well, thank you. So much. It is a pleasure, and I hope we'll carry on the conversation. And I'd love to see future works of yours oh, as well. Oh, stay connected, everyone. Definitely. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.